the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back this Friday, September 10th, 2021. Had a million thoughts, as you can imagine, as to how I wanted to do this show today, as uh, tomorrow is, of course, the 20th commemoration, 20th, I think we'll stick with that word, commemoration, 20th annual commemoration of what took place on September 11th, 2001. And I've had strong thoughts about it, obviously, so many of us have, having been there, having been somewhat involved with some of the political and cultural and international and governmental response and educational response, because at this point, I think I am most worried about something we were told we would never have to worry about in September and October and November 20 years ago. And that is that people will forget what happened and move on. Shapiro was the name of a writer, journalist at the USA Today. I don't know where he went off to, but he was a veteran reporter at the USA Today. We got into several public arguments, he wrote them up at the time, about whether America's intestinal fortitude would ever grow soft when it came to the response, and I was of the belief that it would. So my biggest concern today is about 103 million or so Americans that is to say the number of Americans roughly who are under the age of 25 who would have no actual memory of this, no actual physical memory of watching or experiencing it. I'm worried about those 103 million Americans. So for those of you who are interested in how do you teach them what transpired and what happened this is for you. This is for you. I have combined a bunch of things I have written and co-written and ghost-written over the years that I hope gets us there. And I should like to start really in the year 1999. The USS Cole, you can look it up, was a ship in the docks of Yemen that was blown up by Al-Qaeda at the end of the year 2000. Five days after the attack on the coal, the final presidential candidates debate took place. That was between, as you may recall, George Bush and Al Gore. While the questions all came from the audience in this debate, not one question 
was asked about the USS Cole or terrorism. Remember, it was bombed five days before. Vice President Gore and Governor Bush each took a moment in answering the first question posed to them about health care. And they did say a consoling word to the families of the victims of the coal. But no one picked up on it, and that was the extent of it. When it came to the Middle East, at the time of that election, what was going on in America at the time is that Bill Clinton, as president, had been consumed mostly with things presidents get consumed with when they try to protect their legacy, and that is an Israeli-Arab peace process. Notwithstanding that Yasser Arafat never changed the PLO charter to recognize Israel according to the charter's own terms, or that Yasser Arafat had unleashed several violent uprisings or intifadas in Israel, no foreign leader visited the White House more from 1993 to 2000, that is to say in Bill Clinton's tenure, than Yasser Arafat. No foreign leader visited the White House more. Than Yasser Arafat. And the United States, for the first time in its history, would fund Arafat-controlled Palestinian organizations. Ultimately, President Clinton and the Israeli government, through all of the various negotiations Clinton had put together, offered Arafat control of Arab Jerusalem, which would become the Palestinian capital. He offered him 97% of the West Bank and all of Gaza, To all of this, Arafat said no, and President Clinton would not have a Middle East peace process of which to boast. As for Afghanistan and bin Laden, while some, like people named Richard Clark, were pushing for an effort to take out Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, others outside of government were warning of a domestic attack as well. As far back as 1997, terrorism expert Steve Emerson had warned of terrorist cells in America in the pages of Middle East Quarterly with an article titled, get this, quote, get ready for 20 World Trade Center bombings, close quote. This was in 1997. And in New York City, one Rick Rascorla, the head of security for Morgan Stanley, located in the World Trade Center, had thought after the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, that the terrorists would not stop and would next time use airplanes to take down the Twin Towers. Rascorla pressed the employees at Morgan Stanley to conduct regular drills, evacuation drills, from the World Trade Center, even though some employees grumbled and joked about them. Every few months, all 2,700 employees in the South Tower would be marched with Rascorla at the bullhorn in the arduous trek down the long, winding stairwell of one of the world's highest skyscrapers and out of the building, just for practice. The year 2000 ended, as would soon the presidency of Bill Clinton. There was no substantial action against Osama bin Laden. There was no conversion of or by Yasser Arafat. Saddam Hussein was still running Iraq and thwarting international inspections. And there was more yet to come. September 11th should be forever burned into the conscience and memory of this nation, like December 7th, something that changes the landscape, that tilts the earth. 
Over on the East Coast on September 11th, it was a beautiful morning. I myself had been downtown in Washington, D.C., at my office at Empower America, where I worked with Bill Bennett, Jack Kemp, and Gene Kirkpatrick. Our office was right across the street from the White House, 1701 Pennsylvania Avenue, I believe, was the address. Quoting from an article I wrote in National Review, this is how that day worked out for me. I remember going back to my office at Empower America from a regular Tuesday Bible study that had just concluded, and I had turned on the Today Show, as I always did in the morning. I saw what everyone else did, the first tower on fire. Matt Lauer was reporting that there had been, quote, an accident, close quote, and then he and Katie Kirk went to some Today staff on the ground. One reporter was talking about what she saw, and there was speculation about air traffic control problems and a commuter plane. She interrupted her string of descriptions and speculations to shout, Another plane just hit. Just about this time, our offices, located, as I said, just across from the White House, were receiving calls from friends with all kinds of reports. At one point, I remember someone saying there was a bomb in Lafayette Park. I called a friend of mine whose office was also downtown. He told me he was hearing the same kinds of reports. Something happened at the Pentagon, he said. I heard it was a bomb. He said he was evacuating his office, and we probably should do the same. I didn't have to act. The Secret Service came right into our offices after I hung up. Must have been about 10.30 a.m., they told us we all needed to evacuate. Our conference room overlooked the White House. 17th Street and Connecticut Avenue were clogged with foot and car traffic. I walked with Bill Bennett and his executive assistant and dear friend of ours, Noreen Burns, to the Metro, and we waited with them for a train to pick us up. I will tell you what transpired next on the other side of this story. I have a lot more to say. Stay with me. We have some great guests. Hope we do it right. We're doing our darn best. We'll be right back. Telling the story of 9-11, I started in the last segment. For those of you that want to know how to and what to teach the 103 million Americans that didn't experience or witness it, my hope is that maybe this hour, if not this show, can be what you use. We're now with Bill Bennett and Noreen Burns in Washington, D.C., waiting for a train to pick us up. And no trains were coming. Bill Bennett and Noreen said they would find a ride with a friend. And they were calling all kinds of friends in Washington. I lived in DuPont Circle, which was a walk. They told me to leave and go home. They would be fine. I walked home to DuPont Circle, trying to call friends in New York to see if they were okay. 
no calls would go through. We had an office staff then of probably 30 people. The next day, six of us showed up at work. Bill Bennett, Jack Kemp, our press secretary, Jeff Kwiatkowski, an associate, Kevin Cherry, now a professor, myself and Gene. Actually, Gene didn't show. Gene didn't show that day. We talked about all the reports we had heard, watched, and read. The New York Times had printed as vivid a description as anyone, namely that New York City was consumed in a, quote, hellish storm of ash, glass, smoke, and leaping victims. I think the San Francisco Examiner headline got it the best. I'll tweet it out tomorrow, Saturday, as I do every 9-11. The headline simply read, Bastards, with an exclamation point. If I can take a small diversion, Chick Burlingame was a pilot who was killed on 9-11. His sister Deborah became a friend of mine, and I remember an interview with her a few years after 9-11. And she was asked by Neil Cavuto, Cavuto, what do you miss most? She said, I miss the anger. Good for her. Good for her. That's why I repost the San Francisco Examiner headline every year. I recall that after reading one description of the hellish storm, Bill Bennett said, and they did this all with box cutters. As we sat together summarizing what took place the day before, we all intuitively realized that the full truth was far worse than any of the rumors and hyperbole we'd been picking up the previous morning. We then called Jean Kirkpatrick, as I recall she wasn't there, on the speakerphone to get her thoughts. See, she suggested we all urge the passage of a comprehension, excuse me, a comprehensive declaration of war against Islamic terror organizations and their supporters. We sat around the conference table, Bill, Jack, me, Jeff, and drafted a press release calling on Congress to declare war against, quote, all fundamentalist Islamic entities waging war against the United States and our civilization, whether they assumed the identities of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda, the Islamic Jihad, or any other amorphous grouping or non-governmental organization that is credibly known to be part of this abominable network of terror. The declaration of war should also apply to foreign nations that sponsor, harbor, or support individuals and entities at war with the United States, close quote. The statement concluded, quote, we are at war and Congress has the responsibility to declare war against those people and organizations waging it against us and against any nation known to be sponsoring, supporting, or harboring those people waging war on us. Once having declared war, we must wage it and remove terrorism and terrorists from the face of the earth. That's what I drafted with Gene, Jack, and Bill that day. I just had to put in that intercalary story. Prior to roughly 8.55 in the morning, we had read the New York Times as we did every day. We read the New York Times, the Washington Post series of New York papers. The lead articles on page one of the New York Times that day carried headlines such as, quote, key leaders talk of possible deals to revive the economy. Scientists urge bigger supplies of stem cells. Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Thomas Friedman had an op-ed about the failed peace process in the Middle East. In the arts section, there was a profile of the just-published autobiography 
of a retired domestic terrorist. This is the New York Times on September 11th, so obviously printed the night before the attacks. In the art section, there was a profile of the just-published autobiography of a retired domestic terrorist named Bill Ayers. The title of that article, quote, No Regrets for a Love of Explosives and a memoir, memoir of Sorts, a War Protester Talks of Life with the Weatherman, close quote. Ayers spoke of his anti-Vietnam activities from the 1960s and 70s, but for those who did not remember Ayers or his movement from the past, the opening sentences of that story were unmistakably jarring. He said, quote, I don't regret setting bombs. I feel we didn't do enough. And on page 15 of the New York Times, a too-little-noticed man received the wrong kind of attention. The New York Times read this on page 15, quote, The day after a suicide bombing aimed at Ahmed Shah Massoud, the leader of the last remaining opposition to the Taliban, conflicting reports persisted today over whether he had survived, close quote. As would soon be learned, Massoud, one of the United States' best allies in Afghanistan, if not, as some said, ever, was killed. Other news was to come first. Matt Lauer, after a commercial break, shared the breaking news that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. Cra cameras trained on the building, and Lauer guided view viewers verbally. Quote, you can see fires and flames or smoke billowing from that tower, he said. There's a gaping hole on the north side of the building. That's the side you're seeing to the left-hand side of your screen right now. Katie Kirk next took the screen to introduce an eyewitness, one Elliot Walker, a Today Show producer who was talking to them by phone. Asked what she saw by Kirk, Walker responded, We've heard a very loud sound, the kind of sound you hear when a plane is, you know, going past, fast you. Fast, past you, mm, followed by an enormous crash and an immediate explosion. Then, while Couric asked about emergency crews and whether people were then being brought out of the tower, Walker interjected, Oh my God, oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just flew directly over my building. Can you see it? By then, all the focus was on the Trade Center. All eyes and cameras fixed upon the devastation. Everybody saw. Walker asked if there was an air traffic control breakdown. But no one thought that was what was the case. There were no air traffic control problems. I'll tell you what the problems were when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As I was uh, unfolding the story as I saw it, on 9-11, watching the Today Show as there was speculation of air traffic control problems after we only saw the smoke billowing from the first plane striking. We all watched the second plane, and we knew there were no air traffic control problems. As we all soon learned, three civilian airliners had been hijacked and turned into enormous human and fuel-carrying missiles aimed at targets in New York City and Washington, D.C., and a fourth also destined for D.C. 
which all we knew at the time crashed over Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Nineteen young men, 15 from Saudi Arabia, took over the jetliners using box cutters as weapons, and they used these airplanes and the people inside them as weapons of mass destruction. And mass destruction and slaughter were what America got. The two jets that crashed minutes apart into the World Trade Center caused hundreds of deaths upon impact, including all the people on board who died instantly. The fires the planes started resulted in both both skyscrapers, skyscrapers collapsing in less than two hours. Their structural steel skeletons first buckled from the heat and then the upper floors pancaked downwards, killing thousands. The death toll of nearly 3,000 from the attacks in New York at the Pentagon and in the hijacked plane crash in Shanksville exceeded the total number of dead from the last major attack on Pearl Harbor at 2,388 killed. But unlike the attack at Pearl Harbor, the 9-11 attacks were specifically directed against civilians. The stories of death and tragedy, the stories of heroism and survival from this horrific day, they're too numerous, far too numerous to detail. There were the stories of the policemen and women and the firemen and women who ran up the towers to save as many people as possible as those people were running down the stairs to save their own lives and were killed. There's the story of Father Michael Judge, the chaplain for the New York City Fire Department, who was killed after giving last rites to another fireman. Before he went into the towers, New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani saw him and shouted over to him, Michael, please pray for us, to which the priest shouted back, I always do. In the pocket of Michael Judge's suit, was a prayer he had composed and would often hand out. Not a bad prayer to remember. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. And tell me what you want me to say. And keep me out of your way. Pretty good prayer, that. There were, of course, the children, too, in Washington, D.C., on American Airlines Flight 77. Children Asia Cotton, Bernard Brown, and Rodney Dickens, and their teachers, James DeBunier, Hilda Taylor, and Sarah Clark, were on their way to California on a National Geographic-sponsored field trip. For some, it was their first airplane trip. Flight 77 was also carrying my friend, attorney, and commentator Barbara Olson, the wife of then-Solicitor General of the United States, and There was flight attendant Michelle Heidenberger, whose sister and sister's children were friends of the Bennett family. Flight 77 smashed into the Pentagon, killing all on board as well, not to mention 125 Pentagon employees on the ground. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was in his office in the Pentagon when he heard the crash in the building he was in charge of. The 69-year-old former Navy pilot was jolted and rushed to the scene. He went outside the building and was helpful in getting several people that were injured onto stretchers, said Pentagon spokesman Rear Admiral Craig Quigley. He was out there for 15 minutes or so helping the injured. Back in New York City, there were 200 people who jumped from the Twin Towers to their deaths. They chose to jump rather than be burned to death, and as they jumped with makeshift parachutes, the force generated by their fall ripped the drapes, the tablecloths, the desperately gathered fabric from their hands as they lived out 
their final 10 seconds of life in free fall at 150 miles per hour as they met their pulverization. That's what they met, their pulverization. Think about what goes through the mind of someone on a 106th floor story that knows jumping is the best option you have. Think about those 200 minds. I think about them every time I'm told we shouldn't do enhanced interrogation. I have a lot more to say when we come back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Another of the fallen on 9-11 was Rick Rescorla, the security chief of Morgan Stanley. I mentioned him earlier. He'd spent the last part of his professional career practicing evacuation strategies and died while helping others escape. His last recorded words were, quote, as soon as I make sure everyone else gets out, close quote. He said those words in response to Morgan Stanley regional manager John Olson, who was yelling at him, Rick, you've got to get out, too. There was the former assistant director of the FBI, John O'Neill, who was on the bin Laden case since the 90s. He had left the agency to become the head of security at the World Trade Center. There were so many. And then there were other responders, like retired Marine Dave Carnes, who left his accounting job in Connecticut donned his Marine uniform, stopped by the barbershop to get a regulation Marine haircut, and went to the World Trade Center site to help any way he could and ended up rescuing two police officers who were buried in the rubble and are alive to this day. So many untold stories of tragedy and heroism on and after 9-11, but perhaps none grabbed the attention as that which took place over Shanksville, Pennsylvania, on U.S. Air Flight 93, where businessman Todd Beamer picked up an airplane telephone and transmitted information to the GTE operator, who filled him in on the other flights. Beamer told the operator that he and a few others were planning to try and take the plane back from the terrorists. Beamer prayed the Lord's Prayer with the operator, and then after the prayer was finished, Beamer dropped the phone, leaving the line open. It was then that the operator heard Beamer's words, let's roll. They were the last words she heard. And the phone went silent, and the plane crashed, killing all 44 on board. Flight, Flight 93 went down in an open field in Pennsylvania, and the terrorists did not complete their mission of attacking the United States House of Representatives, thanks to the efforts of a handful of everyday Hard-working Americans, the very people most of Hollywood had spent most of the previous decade mocking. Let's Rule became a popular bumper sticker and a watchword in post-9-11 America. As people tried to figure out just what had taken place, how many were killed, and who was responsible, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani was the man in charge in New York City, commanding all aspects of the emergency response. I remember when a reporter asked him on microphone how many people thought had died. He simply replied, quote, the number will be more than any of us can bear, close quote. And right he was. 
It was an unbearable shock to the country and most of the world, except in those shadowy corners where evil rejoiced. Columnist Charles Krauthammer had speculated that America lived in a bubble, a holiday from history throughout the 1990s, and channeling Robert Frost that the bubble would somehow burst by ice or by fire. Of course, it turned out to be by fire. Friday of that week, President Bush told the nation and the world that America was thinking as one. He was at the National Cathedral, and he led the country in a memorial service. But he did say, quote, the conflict was begun on the timing in terms of others. It will end in a way and at an hour of our choosing. That was the American way in war. First, we pray, and then we prepare to fight. Later that day, standing on a pile of rubble in New York City, President Bush was thanking rescue workers via a handheld megaphone as the crowds were shouting, USA, USA. When some yelled they couldn't hear the president, the crowd quieted, and he shouted, I can hear you, the west of the world hears you, and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. At that point, there was no doubt. The president was resolved, the nation was resolved, and the war that was declared and inflicted upon the United States would be joined. On September 17th, what many know to be Constitution Day, President Bush spoke at a Washington, D.C. mosque to assure the Muslim community in America and throughout the world that the U.S. would not be declaring a war against Islam. Against terrorists and terrorism, yes, Islam, no. The president said, quote, both Americans, our Muslim friends and citizens, taxpaying citizens and Muslims and nations were just appalled and could not believe what they saw on our TV screens. Those acts of violence against innocents violated the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. And it's important for my fellow Americans to understand that the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. It caused no little amount of concern to many that the mosque where the president chose to utter those words, like so many other mosques in America, was built and funded with Saudi Arabian money. It had been documented, too, that the anti-Semitic screed, the protocols of the elders of Zion, were being sold at that mosque where George Bush spoke. And many others became worried about our nation's long and cozy relationship with Saudi Arabia as well. Further concerning was the question of just how many terrorists or terrorist sympathizers were living in America. On September 20th, President Bush addressed a joint session of Congress where he said our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle but a lengthy campaign unlike any other we have ever seen. It may include dramatic strikes visible on TV, covert operations, secrets even in success. We will starve terrorists of funding, turn them against one another, drive them from place to place until there is no refuge or no rest, and we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region, now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States 
as a hostile regime. By that time, it was becoming ever clearer that the attacks were the work of Osama bin Laden and his terrorist work and his terrorist network, Al Qaeda, which means the base. Americans all over the country started delving into what and who Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda was, and just what kinds of things were going on in Afghanistan and in the rest of the Arab world, a world many of us had not focused on for many years. And President Bush instructed further as he threatened the Taliban government in Afghanistan. Quote, they who attacked America are recruited from their own nations and neighborhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan where they are trained in the tactics of terror. They are sent back to their homes or sent to hide in countries around the world to plot evil and destruction. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and with the Taliban regime, which controls most of that country. Women are not allowed to attend school. You can be jailed for owning a television. Religion can be practiced only as their leaders dictate. A man can be jailed if his beard is not long enough. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan, but we condemn the Taliban regime. But the Taliban would not hand over bin Laden and his minions. I'll tell you what happened next. It is fair and true to say that most Americans in the weeks following 9-11 rallied around the flag, certainly most public officials, those who had to answer to the electorate. They supported the president's call. A few, especially those who felt secure in their tenured faculty posts, spoke out against America's response. A speaker at the University of North Carolina, Teachin, called on the president to apologize to the widows and orphans, the tortured and the impoverished, and all the millions of other victims of American imperialism. A Rutgers professor complained that whatever the proximate cause of September 11th, its ultimate cause is the fascism of U.S. foreign policy. The late Meg Greenfield from the Washington Post understood the habitual dissident's mindset. They were the kind of people she once wrote who, if put in a pot by a cannibal chieftain, would always try to see the matter from the cannibal's point of view. Thankfully, such disloyal sentiments were completely unrepresentative of most of Americans' reaction. Most Americans were serious and got serious. Bible sales skyrocketed. Church and synagogue attendance increased. Recovery meetings filled up. Divorce lawyers said families were settling their differences and withdrawing their, petition, their petitions. Didn't last very long. The mood in America outside Washington and New York was marked by both sadness and a strong disposition to vengeance. Country music, the most popular genre on the American music radio dial, captured the mood of the nation perhaps better than any other. Country superstar Alan Jackson performed for the first time a live song at the Country Music Association Awards ceremony in November. It was a tearjerker he had written in the wake of 9-11, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor, or did you just sit down and cry? And on the other side of our national emotions, another super, superstar, Toby Keith, excited concert goers with a song that would soon also top the country charts, courtesy of the red, white, and blue 
Soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye, man, we lit up your world like the 4th of July. How did we get from there to today where the Taliban is back in control, where we have handed them some of their ministries, leaders, and where there is more al-Qaeda in Afghanistan than there was at any point in 2000 or 2001. How did we get there? We'll talk to historian Wilfred McClay in the next hour about all of that. And the great Zudi Jasser coming up in the third hour. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.